Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome in, everybody. When I say we are on some fish, I'm even including my dog, Gibson. Uh, we are back at, uh, what do we call this, the Bite Me headquarters, some, uh, or headquarters number two, my uh, my trailer down here on the canal uh, in Sargent, near Sargent. And uh, even my guy, Gibson, my uh, my old Labrador, is chewing on a fish, a stuffed dog toy fish as we speak. So we're on the fish. We're going to help you get on the fish. I'm John Lopez. Uh, that over there is Captain Scott Knoll. Uh, he's made the trek from uh, beautiful Port O'Connor again. I'm down from uh, beautiful Humble in Houston, Texas. Uh, so we're going to talk a lot of fishing with you guys. And we got a special show today. Uh, I always I like to watch Family Feud sometimes, and I always love uh, when, uh, when when they go on that show. We got a good one on for you. We got a good one on for you today. Uh, well, we do. We have a good show for you today. Uh, if you're interested in, if you do uh, wade fish, you got to listen to today's show. Um, uh, we're going to go deep, deep dive into everything you need to know about wade fishing. We're going to have Patrick Gardner join us uh, this week. He's a uh, captain out of uh, Matagorda and uh, East Matagorda Bays. Probably I could count on one hand uh, the, the best wade fisherman I know, and he is one of those guys. My guy, Captain Scott, probably would have been on that hand at some point in his life because he's he grew up weight fishing so he's going to help us a lot today uh now he's more into tarpon and polling but he'll get in the water once in a while as well so we're going to cover you i love to weight fish we're going to have you covered today i promise you uh but first things first real quick uh don't forget to subscribe to uh, this podcast the bite me podcast uh, on radio.com on uh, spotify on itunes or wherever anywhere you can get uh, a, a podcast. We are there and we are here for you. Also, uh, send us your questions. Uh, that's how this started. Uh, we Today's episode had somebody that, that was getting into weight fishing says, I don't know if I'm really doing it right. So we're going to go soup to nuts, as people like to say, uh, on wade fishing today. Also, keys to a great drift. Not everybody wade fishes. But, and right now with the heat and the tides having been down in the last couple of weeks, it might be time to go drift fishing. We're going to talk about that. Uh, some uh, some other things in store for you as well. But uh, let's get right into it. 
Uh, again, subscribe. Ask us the questions on the Facebook group page. We'll get into some other stuff in a little bit. Uh, before we, get, we, t we do that heavy-duty dive into wade fishing, uh, Captain Scott, a lot of people don't. We'll get to that in just a second. But a lot of people go drift fishing without really knowing, other than just stopping their boat and letting the, the current and the wind take their boat. There are techniques to drift fishing that can help you catch more fish, and that's why we're here uh, in terms of catching more fish. Let's presume, because every conditions change, so let's presume good conditions, 10 to 15 mile an hour, southeast wind, decent water color, which is, this is not a stretch for this time of year, uh, and you want to drift some areas in the bay because you hear on these fishing reports that are that tend to be pretty vague oh yeah drifting over shell mid-bay we caught a bunch of fish well that's not real specific what should our people be looking for well, it's like i talked about last week read between the lines on those fishing reports uh you know we caught them drifting over deep shell if you know your bay system and they're talking about matagorda bay and they say deep shell you know it's it's not 15 feet you know it's not 20 feet deep you, it, could it could be six feet. It could be five feet. Um, but you, you got to know where those shell reefs are. Uh, there's some areas that have just scattered shell, you know, over a, a mud bottom. Uh, you'll hear that every now and then. Knowing your bay, knowing where the shell is. Uh, there's some maps for it, but a lot of it's just trial and error, figuring it out. Mark it on your GPS when you do find it. Uh, I used to watch guys, the old timers, they'd have a, a, a long cane pole, you know, 10, 12 foot, 15 foot cane pole. And they'd be drifting around near a flat, you know, on the edge of a flat where I knew there was shell. And we would just drift it just kind of randomly, you know, and we'd catch fish scattered. Those old guys, man, they'd go along there and they'd drift and they'd, they'd beat the bottom with one of those cane poles. And they would figure it out where that shell ended, where it started, and uh, they would anchor up and throw to it instead of drifting it and they'd beat beat the hell out of us all the time uh, that's where old salts come from yeah that's where the term comes from but as far as techniques for drifting uh, these days everybody's got a trolling motor for the most part so you can use your trolling motor to uh, align your drift a little bit better uh, say you see a slick you know that's popped up and you want to drift that slick uh, you can use a trolling motor to control your angle on your drift a little bit with a trolling motor hell you can go upwind you know so you don't have to just drift drifting was always so something that i did i mean I, Me growing up that's that's how i fished a lot uh, i would pick a shoreline i like to fish closer to shorelines you know like we've talked about i want to be on a drop off so i'd pick a shoreline where i knew the wind was going to blow me down that shoreline instead of blowing straight off of the shore into deeper water where i'd get a short 50 yard drift i if i had it right i could drift two or three hundred four hundred yards and then pull the boat up just a little bit into the bank again and drift uh drift down the shoreline it, the open bay reefs uh you just got to kind of play the wind and figure out <laughs> which way that wind's blowing and, and you have to know how your boat drifts some yeah. some drift bow first some drift stern it, every every boat has a little different drift uh, i got on one one of those little skinny flats boats with no sides, a little 14-footer. I was thinking about buying one, and I was trying one out. And Camille and I were on it, and we had Charlie the lab. And if Charlie went back and checked on Camille, one end of the boat spun around. And then she'd come up there and check on me, and it would spin around the other way. We were just a spinning top out there. If you just moved a little bit on that boat, it would change. Uh, drift socks, they're very important. 
Uh, my buddy Dean down there in Aransas Pass, he does a lot of drifting on those open grass flats because the fish are scattered down there. They're not holding to any structure. They're crossing those flats. Yeah. Uh, so there's really no technique in places like that. It's You know that there's fish in the area. Get upwind and figure out where you can get your longest drift in yeah. and set up and go. Uh, be courteous. Watch the other guys. Uh, don't fire your boat up over the top of the reef. You know, you drift through the reef, and you're just on the end of it where where the bites have stopped, and you crank up that big motor and you make a big spin around, you're going to be the least popular guy out there. Uh, do that at Hannah's, and they might start shooting at you. you know? But some of the more popular reefs, you know, they, there might be eight or ten boats floating at uh, Hannah's, Deep Reef, places like that in East Bay. I don't know if they're as good as they once were after the hurricane killed a lot of the oysters, but back in the day, man, that was that was the place. And there might be 20 boats drifting deep reef over there, uh, and we all were just courteous with each other, drift way off of the the reef, you know, know that you're way past the reef, fire up, run a big big circle around it, get back in line, uh, and go again. Watch and see if anybody did anchor up. And uh, these days you can spot lock with a trolling motor. Right. And so you don't want to get upwind and start drifting and, and run into one that's, that's spot locked. You got to kind of watch what everybody's doing. Yep. Uh, pay attention to how everybody else is fishing it. Uh, if you see somebody that's hammering a fish, look and see what they're doing. You know, see if you can see what they're throwing. Um, it's community fishing when you're, when you're drift fishing on these reefs and stuff. Uh, don't get too upset if you're, you're the first one to first one to deep reef today. Yeah. Oh, you're going to have company. <laughs> you know, don't get mad about it because you're fishing a known place. Uh, if you've got some little secret, you know, reefs scattered around that that are smaller and out of the way, yeah. like a lot of us guides have a few of those places, <laughs> and uh, that's where we go on weekends. Then you can, you know, it's a smaller reef. Not as many people can work it, yeah. but these bigger reefs. Uh, I know there was one uh, that I always heard about. I never fished it over in Sabine, down on the lower end of Sabine. Lots it. of people would fish that thing, and yeah, it's like a conveyor belt. Think yeah. of it that way: you drift your way through there, and then you start over at the beginning yeah. and let the next guy behind you. He's drifting through it. Uh, it's all about courtesy on the on the big drift fish like that. Well, it's funny you asked about that uh, big uh, drift place uh, in Sabine. I, I call it the Oyster Flat, whatever it is officially called. It's on, in south on Sabine. I've, I spent a lot of time fishing Sabine. In fact, I'll tell you a funny story, uh, a good story for me right now. Um, for those who don't know, I, I bought a little piece of, uh, of Deadly Dudley, of, of the soft plastic lure, Deadly Dudleys. And me and Paul are, are it, by the way, buy some if you can because, you know, <laughs> I, but I, it's really, truly, that's where it started. So I'm drifting on this oyster flat on South Sabine, down by the houses, down by the bridge, the causeway, whatever. And they do that backwards fishing down there. I, that's what I call it, where they'll, they'll basically throw their bait upwind, their plastic upwind, and there's so much shell that's scattered so, so many different places, they let some line out. I say they. I've done it a million times myself since then. But the first time I was there, I was actually with Patrick Gardner's dad, Tommy. And Patrick might have been there as well, who we're going to have on here in just a second. This was probably close to 15 years ago. And we start drifting on this flat, and I'm like, I'm looking at him, I'm like, we're going the opposite direction of everyone. Because uh, that's when I first started fishing Sabine. 
and I start looking around, and Tommy looks around, and, he, and that's where I got the term. He goes, they're backwards fishing. <laughs> and I said, what? And all our, our listeners in Sabine and Louisiana will know exactly what I'm talking about. You throw up wind, let out some line, and bounce your plastic over the, the shell. And so we caught a few fish, and there was this woman in a little uh, Alumacraft, flat bottom, with her husband or whomever, just killing trout. I mean, just monster trout. And I'm like, well, we're catching fish, but we're not catching that. So we kind of get in front of them, do the old conga line like you're talking about, get in front, drift exactly where they were, catch a couple little trout. Then they drift over it. She's just slamming some giant trout. I'm like, what the hell is going on? We were just there. So I finally looked at her, and we chatted a little bit. I, you know, and and I, looked, I saw what color she was throwing, and I said, Man, I'm throwing the same color as you. I kind of hollered over. I said, man, I'm throwing the same color as you, but I'm not having nearly the luck. She goes, oh, I'm throwing a deadly dudley. And I went, deadly dudley? Never heard of that in my life. And so um, the next week I bought some deadly dudleys. <laughs> went back there and just hammered the fish. And so, that again, that's probably close to 15 years ago. And anybody who fishes with me, who has fished with me over the last 15 years, knows this is no BS. That's the only, I throw a lot of different baits, but the soft plastic, that's the only soft plastic I throw. So here we go full circle. About a month ago, um, I bought a little piece of the company. I liked it so much uh, from Paul Falgu. And uh, uh, so that, that, that's the story there. It's funny you mentioned that. Uh, on drift fishing now, regular conventional drift fishing, not Sabine backwards fishing, um, th there is a strategy. I used to use a paddle. Everybody used to keep a paddle on their boat for, for trouble spots. I used to use that to kind of feel the bottom when I was drifting. And then you could kind of feel when you hit sand or when you hit shell or whatever. And I would say, you know, look at your depth finder. I like to fish in the back of the boat for that reason. I don't have a depth finder on the front of my boat, my old boat anyway. Uh, so I kind of, you could kind of glance over there once in a while and see contour changes or maybe even bait or depending on how deep it is, you know, the depth changes. So there is strategy with drifting. Um, uh, so, so that, that, that's a big part of it right there. And you touched on the other thing, place your drift sock in a place that doesn't turn your boat into a spinning top because every boat drifts differently. Every brand of boat, you could have a freedom boat. I could have a freedom boat and they both would, or whatever, or transport, transport or whatever. We could have the identical brand boat, the identical size, the identical motor, and they just drift differently. So you got to learn your boat. That's all about weight placement. You know, where where you carry your stuff may not be where I carry my stuff. And uh, it makes all the difference in the world. Two guys go and stand on the bow instead of one at the back and one at the front. Uh, that changes the drift. Uh, so it doesn't hurt to have two drift socks. Uh, and it's if you're just using one, it's not always just the middle of the boat. You know, I mean, it could be... You can tie off to a cleat on the front or the back or the middle, two-thirds of the way. But figure out where that spot is. There's a sweet spot. Yeah. Find out where that is on the side of your boat so that you can drift perfectly sideways. Uh, something we didn't even mention. I, mean, I know we get a lot of beginners that are listening. When you're drift fishing, and I've had this many, many times on my boat, that backwards fishing thing, uh, most of the places we fish are going to be shallow. You know, two to three feet at the most, you know, maybe four or five feet. Uh, that'd be unusual for me. Yeah. But I'm going to fish a foot, two foot, three foot of water. Once that boat passes over that spot, 
the fish are gone. Yeah. They're they're not hanging out. So you're throwing behind the boat where we've just run over it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I get that all the time. You know, people turn around and throw that. Because, no, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the way that we're drifting, the wind's at our back, obviously, because the boat's drifting that direction. So you get a better cast anyway instead of trying to turn around and throw into the wind. I've never figured that one out. Yeah. Um, but even when you're drifting, don't just throw straight directly downwind of the boat. Fan cast, you know, like we talked about with wade fishing, fan cast. So those fish are not just lined up right where you're drifting. Yeah. They could be off the bow. They could be, you know, 45 degree angle to you. Uh, the guy on the back, have him throwing, you know, off off to the the back end of the boat, around to the side. You're throwing from the front to the side. Uh, that way, between the two of you, you're covering most all the water at some point. For drift fishing, I like uh, leadhead jigs. Uh, that's pretty much the only way to go as far as I'm concerned. I, I can work a topwater through it if we're going slow enough. Yeah. Um, one of the things that, that we do, Dean sent me a picture the other day. He said, it's a four-bagger. He had four drift socks out. Yeah, well, he has five <laughs> on the boat, and uh, he had four of them out. He said, it's a four-bagger today. and uh, But he wants to slow his boat down enough to where he's just creeping across the flat. So it doesn't hurt to have two. You know, I, I keep two. I don't. If it's blowing more than that, if it's blowing beyond two bags, then I'm going to go do something else. I may go wade fishing or something. It doesn't hurt to have two. Uh, they're sized by your boat. Uh, when you look at the label, it'll say, you know, this one's for 16 to 20 foot boat or, you know, 20 to 25 foot boat upsize. Same as with the anchor like we talked about last week upsize it one uh, it doesn't hurt anything uh and if you get two upsize both of them yeah. and all it's going to do is slow you down a little bit more which that's fine yeah. you know the slower you go on these drifts it's just like wade fishing to me it basically it's wade fishing without wade fishing yeah. you know it, you're drifting as slow as you can go as soon as you hit fish this is another little thing that i've done for years i always had my anchor ready off the side of the boat at the same point that that drift sock is yeah. so i know it'll hold the boat sideways i have the anchor already tied off there and it's sitting up sitting on the edge yeah. and as soon as you know if we boom boom i had three or four people fishing and two of them got hit you know two of them are bent up and the third one gets hit i'm dropping that anchor right yeah. there because i don't want to drift over those fish uh, as long as the wind's not blowing crazy you know if it's a lighter you know less than 15 then you can anchor up pretty quick like that and right. stop. If it's blowing harder than that, you're going to drift over them anyway. Uh, so it's kind of a mute point. Those are those are pretty much my strategies as right. far as, as far as that goes. Uh, uh, if I can slow it down enough, the wind's light enough, or I got enough drift sock, then I can work a topwater or a subsurface mirror lure style hard plastic, you know, something like that. But most of my drifting is going to be with a probably a 16th ounce jig head maybe a quarter if i'm fishing some real deep water or fishing worth the birds and i want to cast a long ways soft plastic's just the way to go you can cover more water that way 100 percent, i agree with that uh with soft plastic now the one thing i do uh to slow it down even more and we're gonna hop out of the boat here in just a second talk uh, everything you need to know about weight fishing i call it you heard me. Uh, if you've been listening to this podcast, hopscotching. Uh, I, I'll I'll get to shallow before we start real shallow on the drift. Put down my power pole. 
cast, 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 especially if you can with the wind, uh, all over the place. It's, it's kind of like waiting without waiting, not, not quite as good. Then lift the power pole, drift a little bit, maybe cast as you're drifting, find a fish as you talk about, boom, power pole back down, cast, 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 cast. You just increase the numbers that way uh, all around the boat and fan casting and all that. I never throw anything other than soft plastic or top water occasionally, as you mentioned, and uh, a, tw a twitch bait like a Lily you can get away with uh, on some of those. And, of course, my popping cork. The, the corkies are just almost impossible. When you're drifting, you got to stop. Um, speaking of corkies, let's hop out of the boat now. Uh, there's, uh, Scott, there's just, there's just something special about wade fishing. I, I think it's, it's, it's not uniquely Texas. But man, we sure did perfect it. Kind of like barbecue, you know. I, I, you know, you can have good Kansas City barbecue, you can have, you know, good Carolina barbecue, you can have St. Louis barbecue, all that good stuff. But I think Texas perfected it. I think Texas perfected wade fishing. Uh, a lot of guys are known for it. It's just a special thing. We have a lot of people that do it and still want to learn more, and that's why we're going to talk about it. See if we can help at all. We're going to have Pat join us in a little bit. But you grew up wade fishing. I mean, I think everybody starts on the shoreline, but I'm talking about true wade fishing, grinding three, four, sometimes five hours. Um, I mean, just take us through it in terms of what, what guys really, really need to know. First and foremost, you and I have said it. I, I got a real good hunch. Pat's going to say it. Get your feet on the ground and learn it, first of all. That's the beauty of wade fishing is you get to go out there and feel everything. You know, you feel it with, through, your, through the soles of your shoes. You know, you start, uh, start wading, you're, you're in a little mud up there by the bank, and then you work your way out. It gets a little harder, a little firmer. Uh, you start feeling grass. You know, if you're in an area with grass, you can feel that. Uh, doesn't even have to be clear water. You know, you can just start, you know every, everything about it. Then, you, then every now and then you're going to hit a drop. You know, you're gonna you're gonna get a little wet. You know, it's gonna drop down a little bit. I just enjoyed it because it taught me so much about the area. Uh, I would wade wade down a shoreline, start catching fish, and stop. You know, yeah. be sure and stop right there. Work your fish out, and then the fish would move on. You know, or I caught caught three or four, and they quit biting, whatever it was. Then I would walk over to that spot where I was casting. And I would walk over there and feel around with my feet and see what the heck was there. And I learned a lot that way, you know, just by feeling it. Where the lure, where the lure was hitting, where was I getting a hit, where, where were the fish, and why were they there? And uh, sometimes you'd wait over there and be no different than where you were standing. They just happened to be going by. Other times I'd wait over there and I'd find scattered loose shell on the bottom or find a little hump reef that i didn't know was there there's a million things out there that you can learn just a change in depth by six or eight inches you know you're walking down this shoreline and all of a sudden you feel it kind of drop off a little bit you realize all of a sudden the boys are getting wet you know when they weren't before whoa it, you know, it's, in, it's in the fall you know and it's a little chilly it's just a learning experience and uh, we've talked about it many times on here you pick a small area and learn it pick it pick it apart you know walk the whole thing uh, i did it in the kayaks in places that i'd never waited before because i now i've got more access with the kayak you know once i moved into that and i would do it with the paddle or sometimes i'd just sit sideways in the kayak put my feet on the bottom and just walk you know walk the kayak around uh, there's nothing quite like i mean you can look at a depth finder all day long you can look at these maps 
Uh, you got maps stretched out across this table that we've both been looking at. Uh, you can look at all the maps you want. You can look at all the satellites you want. And until you get out there and experience it, you don't know what you got. You know, so that was always, and I still do it today. You know, I mean, there's places that, you know, there's a, I mean, I fished all over Port O'Connor. I fished it from one end to the other for 30 years, but there's still places that I haven't been. You know, there's still new shorelines. There's new edges. There's, uh, then a storm comes along and it changes it and puts a new gut in somewhere. Uh, so there's always something to learn, uh, and, and wade fishing is one of the best ways to learn it. As far as the actual wade fishing itself, you, we're talking about the mechanics there of getting out, feeling it, knowing, learning, knowledge, and all that. Um, wade fishing itself, to me, it's always been less is more, but you got to have enough, if that makes any sense, in terms of what you're throwing. Because you don't want to shortchange yourself and catch fewer fish because... You, you know, you didn't have the bait you want. You didn't have enough of the plastics that was the right color, that were the right color. Um, you, you know, I should have brought that. Uh, you don't want to overcome yourself, overburden yourself with gear and have stuff hanging off everywhere. You want to make sure you have the right boots. I use Ray Guards because, to me, an ounce of prevention. Some people don't, but I do. Um, you you, you got to, you know, obviously the whole slide your feet thing and all that. But when it comes to actually fishing, Number one, have the reel you're most comfortable with. People always talk about confidence bait. This bait is my most confident. I'm going to throw it. Uh, this is the one. These, these baits are the ones I'm the most confident in. I'm going to go wade fishing with them. You better have the reel you're most confident, especially if it's a, a one that, that tends to backlash, a one that could backlash, because you don't want to be stuck out there. And all of a sudden, you're respooling a line. First of all, you don't want to take out a spool of line. So you got to have confidence in every piece of gear you're taking because the less you take, the better, but you want to have enough. I've always been all into the less. You know, whether it was kayaks, now with the Poland skiff, the only time I've broken that rule has been on the Dargle. <laughs> it's just got so damn much storage space, man. I just bring all kind of stuff on there. You know, I need it. But as far as weight fishing goes, I would, I mean, I carried very, very little uh, Back when I really did a lot of it as a teenager, I would have maybe two or three gold spoons and a pocket of uh, Kelly Wigglers, you know, the shrimp tail Kelly Wigglers and, yeah. and maybe a handful of jig heads. And I'd go all day. Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd head out. That was before we really threw topwaters. Believe it or not, there was a time when topwaters were <laughs> something that people just kind of looked at you goofy if you were going to, you know, why are you throwing that? Yeah. You know, redfish and trout don't eat like that. Uh, <laughs> It all that all started with the jointed minnows, you know, the the red fins, and uh, once I started doing that, maybe I'd carry two, you know. But I always always had a backup. I always had at least two of of whatever I wanted to throw that day, and I guess that's where it came from. Where even to this day, I don't change lures that much. I'm very seldom will I change. Uh, what I tie on in the mornings, what I feel best about for that day. And I'm going to stick with it for a long time until it just absolutely proves to me that that's the wrong thing to be doing. Most days I can catch fish on, you know, if I pick up a spoon, I'm going to catch fish on it. If I pick up a soft plastic, you're going to catch If If the fish are eating, you're going to catch them. So I'm not super concerned about having every lure with me. I want every style. I want to be able to cover the water column. You know, I want a couple of top waters. I want a couple of diving baits. I want a couple of twitch baits. I want a couple of soft plastics two different colors that's about it you know i don't i'm not going to bring a whole big old tackle box part of that is 
it's weight. You know, it's extra weight on you. The other part is when you're wade fishing, pretty much everything in that box is disposable because it's going to get wet, it's going to get salt water on it, and the hooks are going to rust. I mean, I've tried all kinds of different stuff. Uh, I've done okay with a few different methods and techniques, but for the most part, if you wade fish with it, it, it just got is going to get funky, you know. And the same with your reels. Um, when I was hardcore wade fishing, I had a Corrado that I fished most of the time when I boat fished. And then I had a Sitka one step down from it for when I was wade fishing all the time, especially if I was fishing in the surf. The Sitka was looser. Yeah, it's like the old thing with a, a Glock and a 1911, the old Colt 1911. A Glock is tight. You pick up a 1911, you know, one of the old government model, and you can shake it, and you hear it rattle. But that old government model gets a little gunk in it. Gets It doesn't need to be cleaned. It's not as, as sensitive. Same thing with that Sitka. It was not as tight of a reel, but it would it would just keep right on trucking. It may not cast as far. It may not feel as smooth as, as my Corrado did, but it was bulletproof. Yeah. And if it did, you know, if it did eventually just crap out on me, it wasn't, I wasn't out as much. I would carry uh, two rods a lot of times. Um, not when I was younger, because I couldn't afford two rods. But uh, as I got older, uh, me and some of my buddies, man, when we, we fished the Rockport area real hard for quite a few years, and we would just get out and go. Yeah. And, I mean, I'm talking about not coming back to the boat. You know, the boat was just to get us over to the island, to the St. Joe shoreline, and then we just disappear. You know, and we'd go in different directions. We might fish together, but most of the time we'd go in different directions. One of my buddies, old Steve, he started I'm walking back to the boat one day. I'd been way out there, and, man, I'd hammered it. I was up in the sand lakes and uh, almost all the way to the sand dunes and catching redfish. As I'm coming back... They both, Steve and the other guy had gotten in the boat, and they were hooting and hollering. Well, they had a bottle of whiskey in the boat, oh, God. and they'd been waiting on me. Well, we didn't have cell phones or anything like that back then, and so they just sat in the boat waiting on me and had a few drinks. And all I hear is I'm coming back. I'm, I'm hearing them yelling. As I get closer, I hear, hey, Speck, hey, Speck, where you been, Speck? And I'm like, what the hell, Speck? I'm always the one catching redfish. Yeah. You know, I'm walking back with a limit of reds, you know, for dinner that night. As I get closer, I said, what the hell, Speck? I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm holding up redfish here. He goes, I don't know. If we just figured calling you Speck was better than calling you Nat's ass, because that's what you look like over there. <laughs> we could barely see you. <laughs> and uh, so I would carry two rods on, you know, especially if I was going to do one of those trips uh, where I'm really going to wade out there or the parking park and walk out trips uh, i would carry two rods two reels and i might carry a couple of extra baits on those trips where i mean the worst thing in the world is to be all the way out there and then lose your favorite bait and not have the backup i did that in mansfield i was fishing by myself down there wading behind the short the intercoastal there where all the spoil banks are i'm wading along there and i'm hammering it man i mean there's trout there's reds and they are flat blowing up this, I'll go date myself, the old Rebel Jumping Minnow. Oh, yeah. That was the first real topwater, cigar-shaped topwater we used. And they were hammering this thing, and it was chartreuse and gold. Chartreuse top, chartreuse bottom, and gold sides. That was all they wanted. I mean, I threw two or three other different lures, got very little out of them, got some swirls, throw that chartreuse, and they just hammered it. Well, I'd lost one, and that's when I changed to a different color. I'd, I'd changed to orange and 
some other colors and it just wasn't working so i went back to my last chartreuse one and i did one of those casts where it breaks during the cast and you're just those throw that lure a country mile and i watched that lure go sailing all the way down there and i was like man i gotta go get that because that's my best lure that's the only one they want to eat and so I tie on a spoon, and I'm just kind of half-ass casting as I walk down there, but I'm keeping an eye on where that is. I'm walking all the way down there to it. And I'm I'm hoofing it. I'm not I'm not just kind of casually going to wade down there. I get <laughs> I get all the way down there to it. And I'm about ten feet from it, and a redfish blows up on it, eats it, and disappears. It was a good lure. It was a good lure. That's hilarious, man. <laughs> yeah, you can catch fish even when you don't have a line on it. Um, hey, let's let's get with uh, Pat Gardner right now. Uh, again, as I said, really, really, really good uh, Wade Fisherman, um, and he's got some great insights. So, want to do a deep dive with you, uh, but Patrick uh, is also really good. Let's pick his brain a little bit. Basically, been fishing with him uh, since he was about five years old. So, uh, I, I know I got the right guy here. Uh, one thing about Patrick, before uh, we get into this, is I always laugh about it because people say, man, Patrick, he's the luckiest son of a gun in the world. He's always catching big fish when everybody else is not. To me, that's because Patrick knows how to grind and knows when to grind and knows where to grind and when to, and when to lift up and move on. So we're, if we're talking, uh, Patrick, if we're talking wade fishing, let, let, let's start right there. I'll get into the tides right now because it's up and down the Texas coast where they've been running a little low. We'll get into some other stuff about weight fishing. But I want to start with knowing how long and when to grind. Uh, a lot of times I'll get out of the boat 30, 40 minutes, and I'm like, eh, I don't feel real good about this. Maybe you'll stay, and I won't. And sometimes I'll go one or two or longer hours. What, what's your just like your general, I guess, approach when you see something that looks like you want to wade or maybe you caught fish there a, a day or two before? But how do you know, okay, guys, we're going to stay right here? Yeah, so it changes depending on the time of year. Um, in the wintertime, a lot of it's a feel thing and uh, time spent on the water. Right now, um, you're getting an area with a ton of bait. If you got a lot of scared bait, you know, I'm going to stay in that area. I know there's fish in the general area. A lot of times I'm looking at the bait, looking at the shorebirds, really taking an overall view of the area, what it looks like, what the water color clarity is, um, and really going from there. As far as being able to stay or not is really just going to be, is almost like a gut feel, you know, but all that's going to be predicated on the bait situation and what the overall area is presenting itself. If there's scared bait in the area, I'm not talking about the mullet that are just, you know, yeah. jumping the soaring mullet. If you got the ones that are skipping across the water or come out and do the flip, the sideways flip, or even you're seeing uh, bait get knocked out of the water right now, we got a ton of finger mullet. We pulled into a cove last week and there was just wads and wads of medium sized finger mullet getting just absolutely demolished by redfish and flounder. Flounder were actually breaching out of the water, hitting these um, balls of bait. And, and obviously in those scenarios, you know, you're going to stay there. You're actually visually seeing the fish. But as long as there's scared bait in the area, I'm going to give it a good a good go at it. And then in the wintertime, um, a lot of that is more so your time on the water, spending time in certain areas. Like I know fish are going to pull up in certain areas depending on what the tide's doing. We might go out and make a wade. My dad taught me this a long time ago. We'll go out and make a wade and not have a single bite for an hour and a half. We'll look at the tide charts, look at the major. If we see everything we want to see, if we have the bait in the area and we know there are fish in the area, 
We'll go back to the boat, have a sandwich, drink a water for, you know, 30, 45 minutes, wait for that tide to turn or maybe that major to click on. We'll get out and just make the same wade. Sometimes I'll stay in one area the entire day just because I know those big fish are eventually going to roll up. One thing I've done in the last few years was um, like a lot of times, and I'm fortunate, you know, you're fortunate, you've got places you can stay down there and I got a place I can stay down there. The night before, if I'm having a beer and I'm on my dock, I'll throw the cast net. I, I, a lot of people don't do this. I'll throw the cast net and, and, and I'll see what kind of bait and what kind of size bait I'm catching. And maybe I'll throw a couple out and have a beer and, and catch whatever right there in the canal. But what you're looking at is the size of the bait and the type of the bait. Like last weekend, uh, I was there and it was finger mullet, exactly what you're talking about. And it was tiny, tiny shrimp. And so I'm thinking, okay, if I were going out to weigh tomorrow, that is a corky. I mean, that, that, that's a corky or that or something the size of a finger mullet. I don't know if you've ever done that, but a lot of people don't realize the bait that you're throwing in the vicinity of, of where you're going to fish, in this case, East Matagorda Bay is where you, you were, um, the bait's going to be the same size in the middle of the bay. So that's one thing to look at is, as you talk about the size of the bait. Yeah, size of the bait is big, and especially this time of the year, you can have too much bait especially when you're throwing artificial. We came across that the other week. There was a ton of bait in the area, knew there was a ton of fish in the area, and really couldn't get them to hit anything. And that was because there was so much bait. They had so many easy options. But yeah, you're definitely looking at the size of the bait, especially as far as what you're going to be throwing at them. So when there's that smaller mullet, I'll keep a smaller topwater on in the morning. I'll throw a Spook Junior. We've had a lot of success on those lately, or even a Skitter Walk. Um, I will move over to the super spooks this time of year because that larger bait is coming into the bay right now. Mm-hmm. You don't have as much as the little tiny shad. And some of the back in the back lakes, you still do have a lot of those little tiny shad. But for the most part, some of that bigger bait's moving in. Um, but really take a view in the areas that you're fishing and pay attention to the size of the bait and what kind of bait is in that area. Now you're talking, getting back to like uh, the, the grind kind of is what I wanted to talk to you about. Now you were talking about, you'll go back to the boat you'll, and then you'll go back and, and do the same wade. What about what you're throwing? Yeah. You know, we, we, we talk about the bait and what it is, but sometimes if there's so much bait, does color make a difference? Or are you just out of luck? I know you, you, you're the type of fisherman that does change bait, uh, you know, pretty regularly depending on what, what you're looking at. What would, what would click on for you, like, okay, the aha moment of, you know what, I need to throw this? So in the wintertime, a lot of times I'm going to always be throwing a corky 90% of the time. Um, I'll start out with a fat boy, and if I know there are fish in the area, I'll downsize. I'll throw the soft dine, um, not even the XL, the actual really small one. Yeah. And, and you'd be surprised how many really big fish have been caught on that lure. Actually, probably the best day I've ever had came off that lure. They weren't hitting anything big. We put it on and absolutely demolished them. So I'll play with sizes. Color is really going to be predicated on the water color and then how much clarity as far as cloud cover. Is it a bright day? Um, And those two factors combined will really dictate what kind of colors I'm throwing. The other thing I've found, um, water clarity is a lot better this time of year. Now, I was down in Rockport about a week ago, and it's just crystal clear. So that's a whole different animal. Um, Where you get up in the middle coast and then the upper coast, if the water starts to clear and it's normally not as clear, that's when casting distance comes into play, I'm guessing. It does for me anyway, and I want to get your thoughts on that. You have to be able to cast something that you can really get out there, even if you're waiting, right? Definitely, and um, I would say casting distance is really important all time of year. Um, 
you know, when the water's dirtier, you're right. It doesn't matter as much, but I'm always constantly trying to put that lure as far as I can away from where we're at. Cause those fish, especially the big fish are very sensitive to anything, especially if I'm taking customers out waiting, I have to overemphasize, you know, like do not slam, you know, if we pull up and we're in knee deep water, you know, about to hop out on a flat, I'm like, look, we're about to roll up here. I'm gonna put the power pull down. Just be as quiet as you can. When you actually get in the water is when you really got to slide your feet and just be, make as minimal noise as possible the entire time you're there. Cause it really plays plays a huge factor in it and then being able to really get that lure out there i think is very important we're talking to captain patrick gardner here and um uh, you, you know you talk about getting the lure out there now let's talk about you know when, when you are wade fishing you've and you've got customers out there um four let's say four guys you and three guys are wade fishing one of the big common mistakes i was talking about this with shane leckler last week if you all heard the podcast you know you you get a bump even everyone has to stop what is the, i mean it's a, it's hard to discipline yourself because let's say you're 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 waiting for 30 minutes and then somebody gets a hit oh i missed it i mean what is your strategy then yeah that's one that'll absolutely <laughs> drive me crazy um when you get that hit you need to plant your feet and stop a lot of the areas that i'm fishing i'll kind of know where these fish are going to be laying so i can kind of give them a heads up even if we don't get a bite in certain areas i'll say look we're going to stop right here and fish this really hard we're going to give it at least 20 minutes but especially if you get a bite like look plant your feet because it's so easy to walk absolutely through the fish i had a trip about a week ago where i was trying to help another guy in the boat three of the guys had already hopped out and i told him look walk through this area super slow you know really fish it fan cast it they're in here i look up after helping this guy it might have been five minutes and they're just they've already blown through this entire place i'm like oh my gosh so definitely whenever you get that first bite plant your feet work the area hard then you can start sliding up but do not walk through the fish what what is the strategy a lot of our listeners go with their buddies uh, they're weekend guys only um they don't know they're not there three or four days a week like you or five or whatever it is this guy did two trips in one day last weekend <laughs> it was incredible in the middle of a 100 degree temperature but um that's neither here nor there what is your strategy like for our listeners that are good avid fishermen but they go out maybe once a week once every couple of weeks aside from the bait everybody has their little knowledge their quote-unquote spots but let's say you know you're not at your spot you're not at, at scared bait what are some of the things that that you need to look at and, and say you know what that might be a good place to wait so leading up to your trip i think the biggest thing is is looking at your wind direction and understanding what that is going to do to the clarity of the areas that you want to go look at um, that's going to come over time you know so say you need to look at least three days back what's the wind been doing what's it going to be doing the day the morning of and then being able to put a picture together, the water clarity should be somewhere around here. And like I said, that's going to come over time. But as far as just going out and fishing, yeah, you're going to you're gonna just have to find some better water. And I say that being a, a guy in East Matagorda Bay, I will fish some of the chocolate water that you've ever seen and still catch fish if you know how to catch them in that really dirty stuff. But if you can find some transitions in that good scared bait, you're going to want to start there. And then move on. But understanding what your base system's doing under certain conditions is really the key. You know this, we fished together for so long. I'm a 
big fan of color changes and streaks. I mean, I'm a huge fan. I, I, don't, I very rarely, um, you know, pass one by. But especially this. You, you hit on something I was going to ask you about. So we all look at the charts, whether it's tied for fishing or, or whatever, and radar and wind direction and wind finder or whatever the app is, that the other one that I use. Um, if it's going due south, due south, due south, or south, southeast, you know, in there somewhere. And then the day I get there, it's kind of coming southwest. I would still go, I don't know about you, but I would still go where I think the fish were when it was relatively clear on a south-southeast wind uh, because they don't move that quick in one day, correct? Absolutely. So especially if it's flipping like that morning, I would go to where you've been catching them if you've been on the water for several days. Um, they should still be there. Of course, it's fishing, so you never know. <laughs> but um, no, I would definitely still go hit that area if you've been catching them there and that wind is still going to flip and it might dirty up at some point that day you'll probably still catch them there early how are you on um because i've done this especially if i i'll stop and and nothing you know whatever i catch you know hard hit or whatever and i don't feel good about it i'll get in the boat and i'll i'll run that shoreline i don't burn you know shorelines i'm talking about just running the shoreline looking for water clarity you know you know before i even start it could be seven in the morning six in the morning and I've only stopped at one place, I'll say, you know what, I'm going to just go find good water. I mean, that, to, to me, that 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 is as important as anything, right? Absolutely. If you get your, to your first area and it's kind of a bust, you don't really catch anything, look at your tide chart, understand where that, you know, is it coming in? Is it going out? Understand where that water is going to be pulling out of. You know, you can get in the back of a of a drain that's pulling out clean water, even if you got a west wind, if you're on a fallen tide, and they'll be sitting there munching. Yeah. So you really need to take a picture at what your tidal movements are doing, too, at the beginning of the day, so you know what your next move is going to be. Now, other thing is, you and I are uh, mostly trout guys, but we'll take whatever, right? And uh, But you've targeted, and we've targeted, you know, flounder in some of these drains. That's... That's a really good thing to wade fish for. How would you approach, like, not this, necessarily this time of year, but when you're when you're targeting flounder? I know recently with your father and I, uh, we, we stopped and we just were wade fishing for flounder. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, we've been on some really big flounder here lately. It seems like they've been pulling up onto some flats and on transitions where mud and sand kind of meet. They've been really thick lately. So yeah, if, if we get out and I start feeling some thumps and you know you know when it's a flounder, I'll actually just straight target them the little johns have been working great on them but i know a lot of people throw gulp you can tandem rig and throw it at them it's it works really well as well um but when you actually locate them most of the time there's not going to be one so if you catch one and you want to catch some flounder go ahead and just target them i guarantee you there's going to be more in that general area now you touched on this earlier too um and and i have to really be wanting to target a big trout when i do this but sometimes if there's a strong southeast wind I'll go to the west shoreline where it's a little dirtier, it's a little bumpier, it's a little harder wade. But a lot of times the dirty side, the rougher side, for some reason, and you tell me if I'm wrong, a lot of times that's the, you know, what you've been talking about, the chocolatey water. There's some big trout in there. Why, why is that in, in your experience and, and what would you do to, to target them? Yeah, and that especially works too in the wintertime. So those big trout will be rolling up. You know, say you got a flat on the windward side, they'll be sitting up there on that flat. And as that bait gets pushed up off that ledge, they're just sitting there getting an easy meal. <laughs> trout, you know, especially the big trout are, are lazy by nature and they're going to want to find the easiest meal possible. Definitely being able to target, and that's a little bit 
bit more of a feel game and time on the water to be confident to go in there in that dirty water on a windward shoreline and be able to target those fish but they're there and especially in the winter time we definitely do it i don't know if this is necessarily wade fishing for you some people do it um but we're in uh beachfront uh you know mode right now as well uh, although the wind's not cooperating quite as much as it should um but when you're you get that good summer clear flat you know beachfront do you wade? Do you do you put your power pole down? You know, you're running. What are you looking at there? So a lot of the guys will just go out there and fish from the boat, and you can have great success doing it. You can just turn on your troll motor and actually slide down. You'll see those fish coming when it gets flat. I mean, there's nothing I like more yeah. than fishing in the surf this time of year when it gets good. And we haven't had many of those days yet, so I'm looking forward to this next month or so of that really turning on. But I prefer to uh, get in there either it depends on how flat it is of how i'm going to approach it but i always do like to wait it i'll either drop my anchor out and then slowly let it slide to like the second sandbar or so so we can get out or if it's completely flat i'll just go drop my power pole down and we'll hop out putting on a big super spook and go to town <laughs> so yeah that's absolutely one of my favorite things to do and i'm hoping it gets flat here pretty quick but you got to get out before sunrise right i mean you got to get out there early early and do you start like captain scott and i've always talked about i start on the first cut gut pound that second gut third gut or what's your approach no you you hit it on the head um especially if i'm coming in from the beach it makes it easier i won't even get my ankles wet before i make my first cast so they'll be right in there in that first gut um in that super shallow stuff ambush and bait if i'm in the boat what i'll do is a lot of times you're not going to get close enough to that first gut to actually hop out without getting to a sticky situation mm -hmm. so i'll put the power pull down walk up to that first gut, then walk down a little bit and start casting and make my way back out. But I definitely want to start in that, you know, right there in the first gut um, to start with because they're usually sitting in there, especially right at daylight. And one thing about, you know, we all have our spots, you know, where we like to fish, whether it's the bay, the, the beachfront, whatever. Maybe, again, you know, tell me your experience because mine has been on the beachfront. It really is, if you find fish on a particular year much less a particular week they'll probably be in that same spot why is that 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 beachfront spots air quote seem to be you know more relevant and more consistent yeah so actually caleb did a video on this if you go back and watch his surf uh fishing video but you actually have guts i know i've heard you talk about it too you can actually see the debris on the shorelines yeah. there's a gut running through those sandbars where you could call it a fish highway fish are coming in and out of there yeah. and fish are constantly moving in the surf so when you find them in areas like that where you got a gut running parallel to the other sandbars right. fish are going to be moving in and out of there and hold there a lot of times during this time of the year when i find a good area i'll just keep going back there day in and day out because there will be fish there mm -hmm. and then also when you're you know you'll start out in the first gut and weigh that out and you'll slowly make your way out. But a lot of times during the day, you'll just have waves of fish come through. You can see them depending on which way the current's moving. You'll know they're pushing bait up and down that beach front and, and you can watch them come. They'll just come in waves and you'll catch, you know, everybody will hook up at once and it'll die down for a second. Everybody will hook up again. Uh, we had that same thing. My brother-in-law, we were actually uh, just, down in uh, Freeport, we stayed a couple weeks ago, and it, it cleaned up just for one morning, but it was absolutely phenomenal, and it was the same scenario, 
by later in the morning, we were already out on the third sandbar, but they were just coming by in waves. Yeah. You know, we'd catch a handful at a time and die down for 10, 15 minutes, and you'd see the next right. the next raft of bait and fish coming. Before I let you go out of here, um, so let's get back to, to the start, weight fishing. A lot of guys listening to this podcast, or, or you know, some are veterans. We have guides listening to this podcast. We have, uh, you know, avid fishermen, weekend fishermen, and, and relatively newcomers. Newcomers tend to go in stages. They'll fish. They'll get a boat. They'll fish. They'll drift. And then they want to get into wade fishing. So let's talk to the newcomers right now. You know, if you're just starting wade fishing, what are your essentials in terms of, of how to do it, what to do? Like take a step-by-step step. if you're new to wade fishing, the things that will kind of increase your odds. Put your feet on the ground. <laughs> Understanding the areas. Um, you know, over the years, I made it a point to literally put my feet on every shoreline of East Matagorda Bay. You know, I've, I've fished that bay for I don't know how many years now since I was, like you said, probably five years old. So the biggest thing is understanding your guts, your bottom structure, what's going on in these different areas, how tides pull through these areas, what wind direction is going to do to these certain areas, and what makes these fish actually show up and why. Um, once again, that's just going to be a time on the water deal, but really I would cut the bay up pretty much in quarters and then you can even micro cut it up and just get your feet in the water, start wading, you know, and really pay attention to everything below the surface. What are you stepping on? Is there shell? Is there sand? Where are the transitions? Mud. Yeah. <laughs> Mud, especially during the winter time, I about drowned myself in it. But really understand and pay attention to every transition. And then when you catch fish, take a mental note of that, exactly where you caught that fish. Because for the most part in these certain areas, fish are going to hold in the same portions of these micro areas within the bay. So once you understand an area and you're like, oh, I caught a fish right over here and right over here. Well, what was the tide doing at that time? Was it coming in? Was it coming out? Were you on the outside of the bar? Were you on the inside of the bar? Were you on the mud? Were you on the sand? Were you on like that transition? And then that's when you really can paint a good picture. When you've been in an area a lot, you understand where those fish are holding and why. So you, you can pretty much call your shots at that point. You're like, okay, well, I got a southeast wind. I got a falling tide. I know right here this bar transitions to mud, and then we got a little shell back here, and I got a deep bowl, you know, and they've always been sitting right there in that deep bowl under these conditions, and, and that's when you can really start calling your shots. I know that takes time, but really just being able to paint a picture of the areas you're targeting is the key to the success and then understanding why those fish are there and what kind of structures they're holding on and what time of year it is. All right. And I started it with, you know, the grind. Let's finish it with that too. Uh, the, the, the patience you have to have, it, it, you have to have a whole different mental approach. Like if you and I want to go out there and have a fish fry, we're, we're doing things a, a lot differently probably than we would if we want to go wade, catch some good 20, 25 inch or bigger trout, you know, the patience you have to have when you're targeting, you know, better trout. Now, sometimes you're going to slay them. You know, we, fortunately, we've all had those good days. But when you want to just have a good, good trout on the end of the line, it, it could be only four or five all day long. What, what keeps you or what are you looking at in terms of I got to be patient because this is going to happen right here. You started with the bait and everything. What else are you looking at? Big time during the winter, you're going to pay attention to the water temperature and then the structure on the bottom, knowing why those fish are holding on that certain structure. A lot of times it's going to be mud, you know, in shell. Um, 
and just knowing the biggest thing when you're targeting big fish is having confidence. I will go to one spot and I will make a wade that might take me five and a half hours because I know eventually one of those fish are going to slide up into that area. And once again, that's more of a time on the water deal. The biggest thing is just is, is fishing and fishing hard and being confident. You got to be able to catch them too, you know? Um, you know, I'll, I'll take guys fishing. They'll be like, well, I just want to catch a really big fish. I'm like, well, I know where they're really big fish, but we got to catch them too. So, um, that's the biggest thing. Fish, fish with confidence and you're gonna have to fish hard. And if you want to be a big trout fisherman, there's nothing, uh, glamorous about it. (laughs) I've spent more days without having a single bite fishing sun up to sundown, um, than I would even like to admit, but that's really what it takes. If you want to be good at catching big fish, then you better be willing to fish all day without having a single bite. Last big trout I caught, 27, 28, I mean, it's not that big for you, I know, but it was in the last big trout I caught. I remember texting uh, the picture to the, to the family, uh, and it was a nice, fat 27-inch, 28-inch, whatever it was. And, and my middle son said, where'd you catch it? I said, well, it only took four and a half hours. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was grinding for four hours without a bite finally got the big trout where can people find you uh, if they want to book you yeah they can find me on facebook patrick gardner and then on instagram captain pat gardner um you can just shoot me a direct message on either one of those and i'll get back with you probably a good time to remember everybody uh, to remind everybody also about uh, uh captainexperiences.com they, a lot of our friends are, are on there uh guides if you're looking but get patrick on facebook or, or instagram um and and i'd be remiss i mean a lot of guys are going to be listening fishing in matagorda and east matagorda this weekend Tides have been really, really low. What would you advise people if they're heading that direction this weekend? Yeah, tides have been extremely low, like winter low tides. Um, The fish have really been pulled off the shorelines. The drifting has been phenomenal. If you're going to be targeting, uh, if you want to really get out and wade, I would say stay on the outside of the ledges. You're going to want to be in that deeper water because they seem to really be pulled off the shorelines. Now, all that will change in in an instant. Whenever we get these tides back in and they and we get these high tides again, because when I before we were catching a lot of fish really really skinny, but the last week or so it's been tough waiting just because it seems like most have been pulled off the shoreline just because of the extremely low tides. Wanted to talk weight fishing and uh, that's one of the best weight fishermen you'll ever know, uh, Captain Patrick Gardner, Captain Caleb McCumber's a good friend as well, Captain Nick Mosley's a good friend. Those three guys uh, do a good job. So man, I appreciate it and uh, we'll see you hopefully this weekend. Yeah, that's always some really, really good stuff. Uh, Pat Gardner, again, uh, reach out to him uh, where we talked about right there. Before we get back to Scott, you know, uh, Scott was talking about, and I was talking about, uh, you know, less is more, but make sure you have the right stuff and enough of the stuff. It's kind of a fine line. I wanted to talk to, to Tim about that. Tim Stamps from Coastal Fishing Gear. Uh, I mean, the guy makes these belts. What do you carry? What do you recommend uh, to make it easier and not so bulky and heavy when you go out waiting? Sure. So, you know, anytime I go fishing, I like to have a plan, some sort of game plan, whether it's uh, I'm going to drive up and go fish the surf in the summertime, or if I'm going to take the boat and go wait a, a, a long uh, flat in the bay, or uh, I like to go fish and just drive up and walk right in and wait in the east and west galveston bay there's a lot of spots that offer that mm-hmm. so so depending on what i'm doing is going to determine what i carry um, how long i'm going to be there um, how much i want to gear out right so the wade ride is designed to 
uh, accommodate somebody based on user preference that day, where they're going. Are they, you know, carry two rods? You want to carry a big box of tackle, small box? Yeah. You know, if you're going to be gone a long time, you want some back support. You wade mud and in Galveston Bay, you're going to have a lower back. You know, yeah. that's going to get sore, right? So, so this thing is designed to be rigged out based on user preference, right? So, so if I'm going to go in and take the uh, uh, take the boat and go wade some flat somewhere, I want to carry two different rods because, right. you know, as a as a weekend warrior, you know, I don't get to go all the time. I want to have my maximum best opportunity to catch fish, right? I don't want any excuses. Um, so I'm going to take, you know, two rods. I'm going to have, say, a plug, top water, some sort of plug on one and a plastic on the other because I, I like the top water bite in the morning, but a lot of times they'll smack at it and not really bite it, you know? Yeah. So then I'm going to immediately throw a plastic. Right. And you can easily do that with one rod right but you're you got to take the time to retie those fish may be gone mm-hmm. i bet nine out of ten times if i miss a fish on a top water i can change the rod real quick boom boom and get a plastic out there and i'm gonna hook up yeah. or at least get bit that that's why i want to carry two rods so i can do that you know so you've got two different presentations and you can stay on the fish if if they're yeah. there um the other thing is if you're wading from the boat you know you could be gone two three hours out of the boat what if you buzz up a reel real bad, you know, and, and it's, you know, you want to walk back in the mud yeah. or you switch it out right there. You carry the second rod, you know, so so I'm going to carry a little bit larger box, a um, little mm-hmm. bit more tackle. Again, I'm going to throw a couple top waters in there, mm-hmm. uh, maybe some corky type baits just suspended under the water, something slow presentation. Mm-hmm. And then I'll have, a, you know, soft plastics with a, a variety of jig heads, you know, uh, um, one-eighth to maybe uh, yeah. a quarter. I'll throw a sixteenth every once in a while. depends on the wind and, and depth and whatnot, um, you know, where, where I'm fishing, right, what my expectations are. But, uh, you know, on the flip side, I like to go in the wintertime and, and wade out uh, near Anawak. I'll walk right in and just wade fish right there. I'm not going to be gone long. I'm not far from the truck. Yeah. So that's when I grab our Madre Sling. Mm-hmm. It's a quick, easy Throw and go, right? You put it over your shoulder. You've yeah. got a rod holder still free up hand to, to retie or handle your fish. But but I still get to carry that same tackle, right? I'm going to carry my top waters, plastics, corky, whatever. Still have be able to hook a stringer to me or a net or, you know, whatever it is you need gear-wise. But it's all right there accessible. My rod and reel is out of the water, you know, um, uh, which is key, right? Salt water, yeah. it, it, it really eats up those reels. So having a secure place to put your rod and reel is just is key to prolong the life of your gear. One thing I learned, you know, as our listeners know, is uh, I've, I've been kind of boatless here. Sold my 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 scout, and I'm getting a uh, I'm getting the uh, uh, the the Freedom Warrior 23, but it's being built. So I've been kind of I hit the jetties last week in Surfside. That sling was gold i'm walking up and down the jetties i'm looking like okay you know looking as we've talked about on the podcast where the water looks like it's probably moving the best you know where the rocks maybe have fallen off and that means there's underwater structure so so i'm going up and down and you're dodging people it was crowded you know so you so i'm going up and down i have that sling on got my rod got a drink on my back pocket boom and i'm walk. i walked miles with that thing so i hadn't really noticed thought of it in that regard like if you're you know a jetty or a pier walker or whatever so it, it really came in handy I, I i like the 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 old school uh wade wright belt uh the the two rod you know you can have the, the rod and and your own uh 
uh, big box, small box. It's very versatile. Like you said, the Wade Wright is, we call it that because it is right for the user. Uh, you want to carry two rods, one rod, a lot of tackle, little tackle. It's it's designed to be rigged out based on user preference. All right, good stuff. Coastal Fishing Gear, Tim Stamps. Do you want to mention, uh, if, you, if you're on their Facebook group page, give a shout out to Camille N- uh, Knoll, uh, Captain Scott's uh, better half. Uh, put her to work, more work, I should say, because she, she busts her butt. Uh, with, especially with the, the Jackson kayaks and everything else she's got on her plate. But we got some really cool gear. I've been using it. I've been wearing it. Uh, we have Bite Me uh, fishing shirts, Bite Me uh, caps that are really sweet, uh, stickers as well. So if you want to hop on the, the group page, she's got the, the link right there. You can buy a little bit of that just to make sure I, can, I get to see Captain Scott again because we're paying our gas money with this. So I want to see this cat because he knows his stuff. Uh, one more question here before we get out of here on to this week's podcast. Can you tell the fish by the boil you see? Uh, both of us have talked about this. In his situation, I would say that all those little small blowups, small boils, they were all mullet. Uh, what happens a lot is mullet are bait fish so they are colored so that you can't really see them i mean that's that's how they survive i can see them from the polling platform a lot of times and they're swimming just an inch underwater and when they sense the boat or somebody makes a cast and uh, makes a quick movement everything death comes from above and below for them yeah you know birds eat them just as much as the fish do so they're just spooky you know they're constantly spooky and if you see that quick little boil that's generally going to be a mullet uh they make a little bitty and not little bitty some of them pretty substantial you know when they're a bigger mullet uh but i see guys cast into that a lot i mean a whole whole lot uh it's just and and all it is is a mullet that's just chilling He's moving along there, and, and that's what makes me think that from what he was saying about the bait fish were just milling about yeah. when he did see them. Uh, they'll just kind of mill around, and they're an inch or two underwater, and they're just being mullet. I don't know what whatever the hell mullet do. And uh, they're just kind of hanging out. Then as soon as something moves, a shadow comes over, anything, a bird flies by, somebody makes a hard cast, uh, they pop. You know, it's just these little quick pops, and all it is is them kicking their tail and diving because something above them just scared the hell out of them. Yeah. It's it's the opposite of when you see them jumping from fish. You know, they dive from birds. And so I think that's a whole lot of what people see. Um, as far as the difference between redfish and trout and all that, redfish, when they're feeding on a shoreline, I can definitely tell the difference um, because they make a toilet flush, whoosh. You know when they when they really eat something, or they're they're splashing up against the bank chasing shrimp. Trout boils are generally anticlimactic. Actually, they yeah they just kind of pop at it like on a topwater. Uh, sometimes you'll see them tail slap, uh, but redfish when it's a boil of redfish and they miss a topwater a lot. And they came at it with gusto, though, man, and and they'll make a huge boil, and I mean, to the point your top water will disappear, you know, in the swirls. That's kind of the only way that I, I'm pretty sure that that was red, or pretty sure that was a trout. Yeah. Uh, if it gets slapped in the air, you know, if your top water starts bouncing in the air under the with a boil under it, that's generally a trout. I don't know why, but trout will slap it around a lot more. Yeah. Uh, if you're in a snook area, snook will do it too. Snook come up and hit a topwater from underneath with their nose a lot of times without opening their mouth. I've seen them do it a bunch. I don't know why they do it. I don't know if they're trying to kill it you know, and slow it down and then come back and eat it. But as far as out on a flat, one of the things I watch for is the mud boil along with the swirl. The swirl doesn't tell me as much as the, the mud boil does. Yeah. 
one big boil, and, you know, big big mud spot, big puff, and then about 20, 30 feet away is another puff. That was a redfish. Yeah. Uh, if it's a steady line of puffs, smaller, and they're spaced out at, you know, two to three feet, as a trout, mm-hmm. more than likely. Uh, think of the size of the tail. Now, a flounder, when it takes off, it's a series of pop, 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 pop. Yeah. And what it is, that fish is swimming, and everywhere that his tail hits the bottom, yeah. and the further apart the, the puffs are, the bigger the flounder is. Yeah. Uh, I see it from the polling platform teaches you a lot yeah. about that. Now, one odd one is when you see puffs that are um, like steps, left, right, left, right, left, right, off to the side of, of it. You think, man, that was two redfish. Nope. It wasn't two redfish. It was a sheep's head. Yeah. Every single time, it's a sheep's head. And I don't know why that is. Do I, I don't know if they, they they don't swim side to side like yeah. that. I don't know if they kick that tail one side and then kick it to the other side You know, as they're moving. And it, it's just a slow, powerful kick. I can tell you that softball-sized puffs spread out left, right, left, right, left, right, offset. It's going to be a sheep's head every single time. Uh, but the redfish... Like I said, generally it's one big boil, and then they, what it is, they kick their tail really hard, and then they just glide. You know, when they spook, it's a big kick, then they glide for a long ways, and as they slow down from their glide, if they're spooked enough, they're going to kick again. After the second kick, two mud puffs on a redfish, you're done. One mud puff on a redfish, you still got a shot. Uh, it, it might work for you, it might not. If I see shrimp jumping and they're up against the shoreline, I know that you know that that's going to be redfish. The boils behind that. Uh, if I see shrimp jumping out in open water and there's boils around it, that's more than likely going to be trout. That's the kind of knowledge uh, only Captain Scott and all can give you, man. That's why uh, I love uh, doing this podcast with you every week, Scott. Uh, I, I know just enough information to be dangerous. That's really good stuff, and we really appreciate uh, doing this uh, for you guys every week. Uh, go fishing, man. Have a good time. Uh, you know, what else are you going to do this time, right? Uh, go fishing. Ask us your questions. We'll answer them all, and we'll make sure... Uh, you know, that's the other thing that I think is the secret to, uh, to to how this podcast has gotten so successful and so many downloads every month and so many people uh, that, that are subscribing to it is we're honest. We tell you uh, everything we know, and hopefully, uh, you know, you catch some more fish. I've had a couple of people send me messages and said, hey, I'm not on Facebook, but I want some of y'all's gear. You know, I want, I want a shirt. It's through my photography website is where we're selling all this stuff. Uh, Mainly because I already had a store set up. Camille already had a store set up in there. And it's not easy to set up a store online. I've I've come to learn from all her frustration with it. Uh, It would have (laughs) ended with me. I mean, there would have been a wall. That's it. We're done. But uh, Scott Knoll photography.com uh you can go on there and get your get your shirt and uh do me a favor while you're on there just kind of glance around yeah, take a look at some of the photography uh it's real easy to order it you know uh, the ordering thing is simple you can click on a photo pick the size you know pick what what kind of material you want it on uh do metal prints uh do all kind of stuff and then they ship it directly right to you from the printer uh you guys are the best uh, thanks for everything you do thanks for supporting the podcast because we, as we've mentioned, we do this for a lot of fun. Uh, we like to go fishing. We like to talk with each other about fishing. So we're just including you uh, in that. Thanks so much. Go out, catch some nice fish, and get it done this weekend. We'll talk to you next time.